Hi, I'm Ruth Wilkinson, the host of Unleash Your Goddess. Today we are delving into Emily Alexandra's life. Emily is talking about her battle with depression, anxiety and her struggle to find support. She went through abusive relationships, alcoholism, loneliness and antidepressants. We find out what got Emily through them dark days of despair and after a wake-up call how she began her road to recovery and what tools she used to begin to heal. I would like to give Emily a big, big welcome today and thank her for finding her voice. Hi Emily, welcome to the show today. We're really pleased to have you on and for you to be here to share your story and your journey. If you could just start by telling the listeners why you want to come on and share your journey today and what what main message that you would like to get over to them? Well, I've been on a a bit of a difficult journey, um, sort of a mental health being through through the run of the mill a little bit. And I just really don't want anyone else who has been struggling or who is struggling to have to go through so many hoops and jumps and fences as I have in order to get the help I need. And I think, you know, if each of us who's been through a difficult time can share the reality of the situation, then it can only help make others feel less alone. I think sometimes when we're going through that, we feel as if we're alone and we're the only ones going through that, even though we know we're not. It's just that feeling of loneliness. Yeah, and because you're so in your head when you're in this state of anxiety, depression or after trauma, you're so in your own mind, it just feels very lonely. Um, So, yeah, it's just really to reassure others that, you know, things can change and um, be aware that what what you may be feeling now isn't the end. It will it will move either way as through the journey of life. So, yes, 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 I think for them to know that there's always light at the end of a tunnel. And it is never as bad as it seems. When you was a child, what did a typical weekend look like? I absolutely loved my younger years. There was a lot of outdoors. Um, we were very fortunate to live in the grounds of a school for a few years where I went to. So we had like an acre long garden, a ramshackle house, absolutely freezing. But the garden was gorgeous. We had an acre, we had a lake, we had a tree house, all the playing fields, farms around us. Um, it was magical but as I got a bit older sort of reaching teenage years um, my weekend was back-to-back events so going to concert band having singing lessons music dance theatre school always high pressure performance Um, Sundays we were always dragged out to church um, until we stamped our feet a little bit so yeah it was quite mixed and we moved around a lot I was actually born in Trowbridge and lived in Bath for a bit but my dad's career meant that we moved quite a bit private schools changing contracts and so on Nottingham Buckinghamshire all over the place yeah it was really sort of loving family maybe a little bit smothering loving yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and yeah just very very busy lots of activities. Did you get a teacher yeah my dad teaches history lesson oh, and he also does maths yeah. and my mum does piano singing and she used to do violin Looking back to when you was eight years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? I had a real fascination with trying to understand why we are the way we are and how we became the way we did as humans and why people think and act the way they do. Um, But I didn't understand what careers there might be around that. And for some reason, I was really drawn to being a lawyer. So I always thought I'd be a lawyer. And did you? Hell no. No, I I got to a point with... um, where I was studying for my A-levels, where it was very clear about 
purely just the regurgitation of information needed and I just don't have the mental capacity for that on top of everything else that I do so it's like it's far more bookish than I wanted it to be yes yeah and our paths change don't they people yeah. want to be like a fairy princess or something don't they <laughs> so, yeah I was a very serious young girl very serious what age did your depression anxiety start as far as I know it's always been there it was quite moving I've, I've, I thought it all started after my first love. Bless him. I was only eight years old then as well. We broke up at nine years old because I had to go to a different secondary school or 11 years old because I went to a different secondary school. Um, never more than, you know, the first kiss. How sweet. I, after that, I spent a whole summer just always on the verge of tears. But actually, I found some letters in a shoebox from when I was much younger. And I think, you know, my handwriting is really spidery, so I couldn't have been any older than maybe five or six. And I'm apologising to my parents for something that happened, whether I'd had a a mood swing or something earlier in the day, but I'd written them a note to apologise, saying I wasn't feeling very well. And that really sort of shook me, because I only found that about four months ago. So this has been with me my whole life, as far as I'm aware. Do you think it's something that was genetic or do you think that something happened in your childhood that like ignited that and started it off? Yeah, no, there's there's definitely an element of genetics. There's a lot of family history with depression. My my grandmother really severely struggled with it and most traditional medications won't work for her. Yeah, it, it was just something that was there, I think. It's just my yeah. personality type, depressive personality type. <laughs> so what situations have triggered your anxiety in the past and how now when you when you get them triggers how do you deal with it differently i was not really fully aware of the anxiety that i was struggling with i always just thought i had depression i didn't realize that a lot of the physical symptoms and ailments i was getting were actually me having panic attacks um so it's been quite difficult to work it out Um, But generally, it's where I've either felt extreme amounts of pressure to do something that I really don't want to be doing or doesn't sit well with me. So like physical discomfort, um, abandonment in relationships and friendships, um, not having very reliable people around me. So I've had to lead every sort of relationship I've ever been in because otherwise, you know, there's never any reciprocal affection or um, you know, gestures. And then my my sisters, both younger sisters, they sort of paired up and did their own thing, were best friends. And I was left being the third older older child who's had to look after them. And that could be quite lonely. Um, Moving schools a lot as well. Lots of very unstable friendships who were were short-lived and trying to join a new school at different times in the school year with new groups of people. And, you know, you're always the outsider. So loneliness really was a massive trigger. And I, once I acknowledged the loneliness, then I realised that it's um, generally it was being fueled around me doing things that I always was taught and told that I should and must be doing instead of actually doing what I'm meant to be doing and what is right for me. So there, there's quite a lot to be done there around sort of lifestyle and understanding myself and my boundaries, which has come with age, really come with age. But I'm still quite insecure even within my family and friend relationships. You know, always wondering if I'm annoying someone or if I've not contacted them enough or if they're just going to stop talking to me. That that sort of thing's always present. Yeah. So it's quite <laughs> difficult. Um, and technology is highly frustrated by something like technology that tends to cause me an anxiety attack. So, um, yeah, it can be quite varied, quite a few things. 
Now, some people may have these attacks and they don't realise what's happening and what it is. So what actually happens when you go into an attack? Well, it can be quite different from person to person. But for me, I get um, a lot of tension in my throat, a lot of tension, almost like I've been holding it or shouting for hours. Uh, get a lot. I'm sighing a lot, particularly if I'm coming towards a depressive episode. I find myself sighing unnecessarily a lot of the day. Um, I tend to get headaches quite quickly, migraines, really bad migraines, and my mood just changes like that. So I can be absolutely fine, and then all I'm all I'm doing is speaking fast, shouting, like physically, like dropping things or throwing things, like slamming my mouse down on the table, for example. And I just snap at whoever's near me at the time. Um, And that's been really hard in employment situations before because I wasn't aware that that was my anxiety. I just thought that was me. Yes. So when I've ever had to deal with um, a manager or a colleague, I'm really sorry, I'm just trying to express or this is just how I deal with this, but not really understanding myself, the condition I was dealing with. So, yeah, it can be very difficult. And what would you say to those that are listening today and they have anxiety attacks? Have you got any extra tools that they could use to get through that? I have been through so many different courses and programs. The best thing that works for me is a form of cognitive behavioural therapy, which enables you to almost allow yourself acknowledge the feeling. So once you know that that is your reaction to the situation, You say, okay, I am feeling this. When you acknowledge that it's a feeling or an emotion or a thought, then you know that you have made that yourself. So what caused you to have that feeling or thought? So you just, you take yourself away from it and you sit and you have a few moments reflection. But the first half hour or so, your body is purely in a chemical overdrive of fight or flight. In that situation, the best thing you can do is distract yourself by trying to do something creative or bring in something that helps you be mindful. So you might do the five senses. So five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can taste, one thing you can smell. However you want to break that down, that can Mm. literally switch off the fight or flight response because you're distracting your brain. Or um, a slow breathing technique where you breathe in for five, hold it for seven and breathe out for eight. Again, that slows the body's response and makes you override the reaction, which is fascinating. And then it's always good to have um, a little box nearby, which is a huge tip I give everyone. Um, And I was given by someone who helped me and I call it the happy box. So in there you have, um, you might have an iPad or an iPod with your favourite playlist. You might have your favourite biscuit or sweet. You might have a photo that brings happy memories of a a pleasant time where you were in your, your favourite place or a trinket from a holiday. Just little bits and things that you can look at that you know will take you to your safe space. Yeah, I've got one of those. It's a happy box. And then wherever I go, and if I'm happy at that moment, like if I'm, d- I'm down the beach or in the woods, I will pick something up and I'll bring it home and put it in that happy box. And then when I'm feeling down or sad or having a bad day, I will go in that happy box. And literally, as I feel that thing, it takes me back to that happy moment. It's so powerful, isn't it? It really is. And the brain is such a complex thing that we can barely even understand, even with all the science we've got at the moment. It's a really powerful tool to be able to acknowledge and be self-aware when you're having a a breakdown, an anxiety attack, a depressive episode. 
self-awareness is the first step to being able to control and help yourself out of that situation. But just rest assured, it's not who you are. It's just a phase of a chemical overwhelm that will pass. You've just got to let it happen. Have you ever had night terror attacks? I know I've had that in the past. I used to have them as a young child. I haven't had them for years. I have had a moment where I um, had the sleep paralysis situation, but that was actually following a meditation where I just went too deep in my meditation yeah. and then couldn't bring myself back out of it for five minutes. Um, but uh, it's more like I'll, I'll wake up at night and I will feel a presence in the room or a heaviness in the room, and that will then mean that I am paralysed in not literally, but I feel like I can't move out of my bed. I can't turn away in case there's something right next to me looking at me. Even though I know there's nothing there, I still do wake up and feel that sometimes. So, Do you feel as if something good has been watching over you all your life and is around you now? You know what, actually, no. <laughs> I have felt very alone and this, this has been a huge part of it. Um, for me, I've always felt very lonely because when I have asked or relied on things or relied on other people, they my expectations of what that might reciprocate as has never been in front of me. If I'm being picked up from an event, my parents would be an hour late or I wanted to go and do a show. They'd take me to the audition, I'd get the part and then they'd tell me that they couldn't take me to all the rehearsals because they had teaching requirements. So I, I would get the opportunity and then it would be almost like taken away from me. In relationships, friendships, like from a young age, I think it was six or seven, one of my best friends did this thing where she'd talk to someone and then she'd give me a look and then she'd just start running and that would be the sign to me to run with her and sit in a playhouse and hide from this other person which I never really felt comfortable with and she did that to me one day and I was like look I can't trust anyone even the people who are supposed to be my friends they just desert or abandon me when they've had enough of me so I've just got to do it on myself I was to say I was raised quite Christian but as soon as I had the opportunity to explore and learn about other religions and cultures I've shunned it all it just didn't sit well with me it almost felt like the universe was laughing at me for even attempting to look at christianity and i you know i i, I respect anyone's viewpoint yes. i for me, it's just not for me no. and you know that was something again it was like well i was part of something and it sort of threw me out because it was telling me that it was ridiculous and i'm yeah. not part yeah. of that yeah. yeah it's been quite tricky so what did you end up doing what was one of the first jobs that you ever did I started working in year 11 at school, so it was sixth form, year 10 actually, year 10. And in year 10, I was working in a little cafe, emptying teapots, which was sweet, but people used to trap wasps in them and I hated it. <laughs> so after about, well, they were outdoors, it was sunny, they had cakes, so I would trap a wasp in the teapot and we don't have to worry about it. So um, I, I didn't stay there very long, but I ended up working in a bookshop. At the weekends, it was a really sweet, independent one. Nice. And um, we had the most amazing events for the Harry Potter launches, everyone in fancy dress costume. If you think Black Books, it was a bit like Black Books, but slightly more organised and tasteful oh, and child-focused. Yeah. But the owners were hilarious. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely okay. loved them. That was a brilliant job. Um, and alongside that, I was also working part-time in a pub as soon as I was old enough. So I've, I've always worked. I've always had yeah. some job or other. You get married young? No, I only got married two years ago. I'm 33 now, just before lockdown. <laughs> but we did manage to get our honeymoon in, so we're okay. Um, and yeah, so we, we married two years ago. We've been together nine years now. Just had our nine-year anniversary. Lovely. That's lovely. 
Which leads us on to when you told me about the abusive relationship and relationships that, that you've had previously and how that affected you. If you'd like to talk more about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, when I say an abusive relationship, I'm not talking that physically abusive. So no one's ever hit me or threatens to hit me or anything like that. It's been a case of I've been in relationships where I have not been valued they have again they have you know organized things and then just sort of left me out or purposely excluded me or cheated on me or um one of them my, my longest relationship was six years he used to affectionately call me a whore which I don't think is an affectionate term at all but you know you don't realize till afterwards it, it's it's very difficult thinking that you're in a loving relationship and realising that you're literally just there as an entertainment for them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was just a culmination of that. Um, so could you tell us what gave you the strength to get out of them relationships? To be honest, it got to a point where I was just getting so numb to it all. But it was them ending it rather than me. That particular six-year one ended with me making him a cup of tea after turning up at 5am from some night out that he wouldn't tell me about. The last tea bag and sugar in the house as ex-students, not got much money. Uh, That was me being really generous and trying to care for my partner. And uh, he woke up and left it to go cold, refused to tell me where he'd been. I might have poured it over him. (laughs) But that was me just going, I've had enough. Um, And yeah, I think just from that moment on, we just kind of mutually agreed that there was no relationship anymore. We ended up living together for another three months and it was not a clean break. And um, a lot of that basically caused the next huge spiral episode of my life. So um, they they fit, you know, when they're coming to a close because you already feel that you could be okay if they weren't there. Yes. That's, that's how you know when the relationship's not going the right way. That's right. So right. Then you went on to, we're going to talk about the spiral next. So, (laughs) I was working three jobs on a 60 plus hour week and any time I wasn't working or training because I was also training at the time to go into a new career I was out drinking and partying or fast asleep nothing else in between and on top of that I had developed sciatica so I was also on very strong medication and I was using the alcohol as a way to just numb any emotion so I would literally go to bed with two bottles of wine next to me that would that would be my standard night just to go to sleep without having to think or feel anything um I did have a lot of blackouts a lot of bruising kept falling over a lot people at work maybe making comments that they could smell wine on me that sort of thing and and sort of really long periods of depression and absence of work lots of uh, meaningless short-term fling relationships know just having no respect for myself my body or my time and just not wanting to be around anymore but not wanting to actually take any steps to leave this plane um just not wanting to be here and just numbing everything and that that was how I was drink my alcohol coming out of that and actually it was my partner who really helped me come out of that I met him and he said "I, I can't be with someone who's going to be this sort of hedonistic all the time it's if, if I'm not around and I get a phone call from you at three in the morning saying you're drunk and I can hear random men around you, I'm not going to feel comfortable with it. No. So um, it was that point where I just went, right, I'm not doing this anymore. And I significantly reduced the amount I was drinking. Public services that had been offered to me to support me with it had never actually got in touch after my request. 
So it was just down to me again, like always, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my partner saying that, I was like, okay, I've got someone here who is interested in me, who's giving me time, who's actually saying, look, I do want to spend time with you, but not like this. So I made some changes and, you know, it's, he's been great. And I'm, I can have a drink or not have a drink. It's not a problem. I've not got a dependency or an addiction. But following that, I then had a really, really bad abscess on my bum, <laughs> which was horrible, um, which got infected. And then I had to have something called draining setums, which are effectively, you know, those little clothes tags. Yeah through certain muscles and several operations over a number of years. Um, I had another bout of sciatica. That sounds awful thing to go through. What would you say to someone that is suffering with de- depression and they're on antidepressants and, and they've got a drink problem? If someone's struggling with alcohol and antidepressants, antidepressants will literally allow you to feel stable so that you can address the thoughts that that are affecting your emotions. So you can gain some insight and get that control, like I mentioned earlier. It allows you to take a step back and become self-aware, because otherwise your brain is in chemical overdrive and you can't turn it off. After a while, and it could be six months, it could be 10 years, like it was 10 years for me that I was on them, you'll get to a point where you will just feel flat all the time. And that's when it's ready. That's when you know you're ready to come off them. You'll also feel a bit more optimistic about what you want to be doing and you'll have a better understanding of your own triggers and responses to things that's when you know that it's safe to come off them long term because I know you often find that quite often when the antidepressants aren't having an effect anymore because your body's got used to it that they start taking stronger is that right um well antidepressants take six to eight weeks to work people expect immediate results Right. If you're feeling very unwell after two weeks of regularly taking them, as in you are being sick or you feel like you've got pins and needles and zaps and so on, then you're probably on the wrong one. And there are so many types that you can choose from. The doctor will give you at least five or six different types if you keep going back and saying they don't work. But it is a long process. It takes at least six weeks for it to really have an effect. It does alter your brain chemistry from the yeah. first time you take it. That must be so hard if you're working and you're having to hold a job down and you're getting all these side effects. Normally a doctor will sign you off for the first two months or first six weeks to allow you to get some sort of normality back. And that will normally be accompanied by you being put on a waiting list for CBT or counselling and or work for that for you as well. The alcohol side of things though, if, if you are in a place where you're feeling low and numb, honestly the worst thing you can do is have alcohol. It will exacerbate your numb, it will exacerbate your low, and it will make you feel even worse the next day, and it will make you more depressed. Yeah. So it's a a sedative. It will make you feel flat and numb. And the hangovers are horrible. I mean, come on, who wants hangovers? Yeah. Best thing to do is probably have a nice cup of tea, some chocolate biscuits, and put your favourite film on and have a really good cry and just let it all out. Yeah, a lot of times it's numbing the emotions and we just don't want to think about what's going on or or deal with it. So that seems like the easiest way, doesn't it? What would you say helped you the most? Which therapy? I mean, counselling was really useful initially is that because I didn't have that support network around me, but just talking to someone, expressing how you feel in a, in a place where you feel safe and you know they're not going to judge you or say, oh, just snap out of it. If you're going to meet someone like, talk to someone like that, find yeah. a different person. Find someone who understands mental health and just have a conversation with them. Yeah. Everyone who's been through it will happily share their journey with you to a point. 
the best thing for me was looking at CBT, being made more aware of how to gain control of that myself with the self-awareness. Further, going deeper than that, you know, a, a lot of the issues that I've got stem from my childhood beliefs and foundations that were created through, you know, changing multiple schools, having mixed groups of friends, having parents who are teachers who are very musical. So from the CBT and looking back deeper into core beliefs and mindset and all of the things work around that. And I already had an interest in psychology anyway. I just never thought about bringing psychology into more of a spiritual mental. I don't know why. Obviously, the two are the same thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated now by NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Yes. Which is basically the ability to identify a trigger. So, for example, if I ask someone to do something and they don't do it in the time frame that I might have liked, but I never gave them a time frame and that irritates me. Well, actually, that's my expectation that someone should do something. So then I'd go back to where did that expectation come from? What age was I? Who told me that? Was it really true? And, you know, um, you've probably come across it yourself in coaching. That's where you start to challenge the BS beliefs. And you can literally turn off an anxious thought or something that has been driving you absolutely bonkers for years or causing you pain. You can turn it off just by addressing the core belief. And that has been magical for me. And it's, it's what I call light bulb moments. Yes. I'm just learning that I've been having counselling the last couple of years. And I've learned that so many of my problems have come from my upbringing. And when I was a child and things that happened there. And it's like, wow, light bulb moment. So powerful. So often just to grow up and stop being a child. When actually, if you look back at you as a child, that is who you really are. It's you in purity. It's, it is your open mind. It is your core beliefs that can be changed. It's your ability to experience joy and playfulness. Yes. And it's your ability to be in what people call the flow state. Yes. But society, patriarchal society, demands that we are serious, sensible adults. And all we want to do is work and have a family. And yes. in reality, that's, that's not human. No, no. That's no. industry. That's right. Are you an NLP therapist now then? No, I'm, I'm a well-being coach, but I have just um, signed up to do a, an LLP course as well. So just, just for my own interest, yeah. because I find that if, I'm, if I can help myself, then I'll be able to help others. Yes, yeah. Doing all of this training and everything so that I can gain better control over my own understanding of emotions and... Yeah then hopefully I can really help others. I'm going to move on now to your physical injuries that you said earlier to me that, that you had. Let's let's talk a bit about those. So um, very lucky. I've never had a broken bone in my life, Touchwood. Um, but as I said, I, um, I was doing yoga in a group class and I ended up damaging my sciatic nerve and I got sciatica, um, which got pretty bad and lasted about a year. Then I had a, another flare-up of that for about six months, which was a, a, also at the same time as having this abscess, which was absolutely horrible. So therefore, not multiple surgeries. And since then, I've had a number of falls as well, which have further hurt my back. You know, I've, I've had disc bulges, tears, all sorts, torn my pelvic hip flexors. 
and you know like in your 30s like these are injuries that you're not supposed to have to face um i think someone told me as well that the abscess issue that i had is normally most common among men in their mid 40s i was like oh brilliant i'm a 40 year old man (laughs) and you know it's it's humiliating you go to a hospital and you're literally naked from the waist down with 10 men swarming the bed around you and it's like oh, this is highly embarrassing yes, yes. and you're very vulnerable and exposed and you can't do anything to better your situation you're on medication that just renders you in bed all day you can't put your socks on you can't make the bed when you do get up you're spinning and sick and dizzy you end up basically just locking yourself away for a few years frustration at not being able to have the energy that you once had and then after a prolonged period of pain, your brain automatically assumes that without the medication, the pain is there. So if you come off the medication, even if you're not in pain, your brain is telling you you are. And that's how people end up on long term medication when they don't really need it. And also because you're used to not doing much physically because you can't, when you are then able to, you don't have the energy to do it because your brain is in something called the lethargy spiral. And the only way to break that is when you are feeling like you are bone tired and you're face planting the floor, you have to drag yourself up and go for a walk. Yeah. You have to jog on the spot. You have to do some jumping jacks, something. But it's the only way to reignite the energy in the body and get those mitochondria working again. Yeah. Though I hear ashwagandha is quite good for that as well. (laughs) (laughs) What got you through with the sciatica? Because I know I've got it and I've had it for like four months now. And it is so painful. So I'd love to hear about that and how you got through that. Um, I went straight to a physiotherapist. They are absolutely amazing. The only way out of sciatica is to do daily physiotherapy. It's basically re-clicking the thing that's out of place back into where it's supposed to be. And the key is if it hurts, you've probably done a little bit too much that day and just ease off a little bit. Just be kind to yourself, accept that you cannot control it right now. You are literally only supposed to do what you need to do to, to function to live so if you can brush your teeth get up get dressed eat some food and go back to bed that's a successful day yeah. and it's it's just being kinder being gentler being more accepting and then putting in the work to just help yourself heal yeah but it is it's very difficult there will be days <laughs> where you just want to lie in bed and just forget the world exists so. yeah. <laughs> what got you through when the pain was just too much because I would have thought with depression that that would ignite that and make that worse and make everything more stressful. There's a massive pain is a massive trigger for my depression. If I get any pain at all now, because this, all these incidents happened back to back for eight years. So any time I get any pain now, I automatically have an anxiety attack and my depression is triggered. And it's very hard to break that. And, I'm, you know, that's something I've only realised really this last year since coming off my antidepressants. Yes. Um, I've had a lot of realisations since coming off them. <laughs> would you say that the antidepressants worked for you do you think it was a good thing for you to take personally yeah if you are in a proper numb depression state where all you can do is cry and you've lost all interest then you need to go on them it's the only way to sort of give yourself a step ladder really yes you yes. think of depression is like this big murky flood water that's surrounding you yeah, and it's carrying all of your misery and swirling gunk and bubbling and muck and horrible. Antidepressants give you a step ladder to just raise yourself out of it, 
look down, analyse where the muck is, clear the muck out, and then when it's ready, you can get back into the clear waters again. Do you know what? You are one amazing lady. You really are. Thank you. You are amazing. (laughs) So I know you said that during COVID you got help from a mental health coach. Um, What was your breaking point and how did that come about? I'm, I'm probably one of the few people who actually really enjoyed lockdown. It gave me space away from other people. It gave me a space away from the emotional vampires. It gave me time with my husband and my, my cats in my own space, which I barely spend any time in because I'm always working. The, the breaking point for me was coming off the antidepressants. After they were out of my system, for the first time in 10 years, I started to feel emotions again. Wow. I felt anger. I felt grief, I felt pain, I felt frustration. And it was literally like looking at a toddler having a tantrum on the floor, like bright red in the face, screaming. The only way to numb the pain is to bang your head against a wall. It was terrifying. And I just got to a point where I was like, this isn't normal, I can't keep doing this. What What's wrong? And it, you know, part, part of it's the science and the not feeling emotions. And part of it was, I was just on the wrong path. I was yeah. in the wrong place. I was doing so much for everyone else. I wasn't doing anything for myself. I was working all the hours possible and barely making, you know, 20k a year. And I've got a university degree. I'm well educated. I'm intelligent. I'm smart. Starting to understand that all of these things are true, (laughs) which is quite nice. But, you know, I, I always undervalued myself. I always went for the entry admin roles or offering to help people for lower than I should be because I thought I was being nice and helpful. And that was a good person. When I wasn't at all, I was just undervaluing myself. Yeah, it, it was a very difficult journey. And I, I found this lady online. She's absolutely lovely. She's called the Smile Maker Coach. She's brilliant. Um, but, you know, four or five sessions with her and I felt alive. So there's light bulb moments. It was just having someone know how to guide the questions and ask me questions that I might have felt a bit uncomfortable checking myself with or repeating back my own statements to me and saying, do you really feel this? I go, oh, hang on a minute. I believed I felt that, but do I actually? Yeah. And just having someone literally, it's like having a human antidepressant, <laughs> taking you out of yourself for a few minutes to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. So how did you rediscover your purpose? It was through these sessions, actually. Um, I, I was not doing anything creative. I wasn't I, when I say growing up, childhood was a lot of music, singing, drama, acting, performing, being outside in nature. I hadn't done any of that for 10 years. I stopped my singing altogether. And I'm, I'm a classically trained singer. I can do opera stuff, right? I'd not even hummed around the house for five years. I hadn't picked up a book and been able to read it from cover to cover. So she was just saying, look, get your, create a happy box. And then as part of that, start picking up things you used to do and see if they still interest you. Because it might have been your parents, it might have been you, but if you did them and they made you happy, go and do it. The first thing I did was I got a whole load of like um, giant lollipop sticks, multicoloured, some pinwheels, some glittery stars um, and some little butterflies. And I went to my local park and I spent an hour just decorating the park, which is absolutely wonderful. And as soon as I finished, this little three three or four-year-old toddler comes through the gate and says, Mummy, look! And I was like... That's that's amazing. I feel joy for the first time in so long. I came home, just buoyed up. I contacted a singing teacher. I started having vocal coaching lessons again. Not singing songs, but just playing around with the voice and yeah. music and healing myself with singing and making silly sounds. And it really brought me back to realising that 
I am here to help people be happy and joyful, but I'm not here to do it for them. I'm just here to guide them or, you know, give them the opportunity to know that they can do it themselves. That's right. That's right. And yeah, it's just, it's literally a homecoming. It's been amazing. Now you also help young ladies with their GCSEs, don't you? Yeah. So um, I've been mentoring for a little while with a company called the Girls Network who go into schools in um, what they call underprivileged areas. And these young ladies may have never left their 10 square road area in their life. Um, Someone was on holiday a few, they booked a road trip as part of the project. And this girl saw a Tesco's on the way to London. She's like, oh, we're not left our village yet. Like, well, yeah, this is a different Tesco. There's more than one Tesco's in the UK. Or their parents have always been stay-at-home mums and they're told they're not going to have a career because it's a girl's career is to stay at home and look after the family and the boys go out and do the work and all of these myths of Victoriana patriarchy absolutely hate it horrible all this grooming that's happened for these young girls and basically it allows any woman to go in and work with these girls one-on-one for the course of the school year once a month and we work through you know, who are you? What are your options? What are you, what are the possible things that you could do? What are good boundaries? What are um, what are analytical skills? What do you think employability might mean for you? Like, what actually are your career options? And just really giving them the support and information that everyone should have. Had. And I've had so many lovely young ladies out of it. Two of them have now gone on to start their own businesses because they loved what I was doing as well, which is really sweet. Um, and I've I've got one young girl who. We've really formed a bond this year through lockdown because we couldn't meet as normal and she couldn't really see anyone other than her parents for the whole year. So we've, we've developed a really lovely relationship and um, I actually get to mentor her again next year. So I'm really looking forward oh, to that's that. Lovely. That's lovely. So how would a young lady go about that when she's at school and she she wants that help? If they want to have mentoring, they can have mentoring. Most councils will have or universities have a local enterprise programme which people can do. There's all sorts of networking and free support groups out there if people want it. Um, I know the university in Portsmouth have just started a women's enterprise programme for women who are maybe from less privileged backgrounds or who have ended up having children really early and don't really have a partner with them and they don't they feel a bit stuck. They can go on one of these programmes and get a mentor as well. So we're gonna chat now about the job that you do now. You're an accredited well being practitioner. Can you tell us more about that? So um it kind of ties into a bit of the redundancy stuff as well. So through lockdown I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about the number of employers really badly treating their staff in redundancy situations, just not giving them any notice. All the reports we saw on the news about all the um Flights, flight companies and companies going under. So I, well, I've got a bit of background in HR and working with people and my partner works in the trade union and I've, he's got a lot of interest in employment law and I've got this great network on LinkedIn of professionals in all sorts of areas. So I pulled these people together and I created a free resource for people going through redundancy. And then basically I just signpost people to links or partners and they can help them with specific questions. So rather than waiting five weeks to speak to someone at Citizens Advice, they can just get all the information off the website immediately. That's lovely. Could you please give us that web address now so the listeners could look that up? Yes, it's www.redundancysupportuk.org. Lovely, thank you. Through building the relationships, I ended up meeting a whole load of people who were working in the coaching, training, development sphere who were all very corporate, 
but didn't like the way that leaders are treating their staff. There's a huge divide between a really good employer who will recognise you as an individual, invest in you, support you, because they know that they're going to get rewards back in terms of the effort you'll put into their business. And then the typical business, which goes, you come from school, you are here to work, you will keep your head down, you will not ask any questions and you will do what I tell you and you'll go home and you'll take your pay and that's it. Um, which, you know, again, is very much Victorian factory worker mindset and not appropriate to modern day, especially with lockdown, flexible working, etc. So I started looking at projects of how to help people. And I came across something called the Wellbeing Project, which is amazing. And they do um, wellbeing at work assessments. So I thought, well, I'm really, really interested in this. It literally does what I want to do already. So I'll just become accredited and help promote this because it's brilliant not about the money just about getting the message out there and making change real change happen because it's too late for all of this nonsense to still be going on so I I became an an accredited raw practitioner which is workplace resilience and well-being which means I can help people on a one-to-one level realize where they are in their own well-being journey and identify any gaps for improvement and because it was a coaching element and I'd not really done coaching I'd only done mentoring for so long I was really wanted to do a specific coaching program and I came across um, Dr. Claire Maguire, who is absolutely brilliant. And she's been doing wellbeing coaching and retreats for women for years. And I took her course and it covers everything from the psychology, the science, spiritual side of things, um, understanding different cultural viewpoints and how there's commonalities across the way, looking at actual therapy techniques and tools like CBT um looking at habit breaking or you know potential sound healing anything someone could need in their life and um she was very heavily focused on kundalini yoga and that sort of thing but it's developed into a much more well-rounded program so um yes so i'm i'm effectively now i'm a well-being life coach which is accredited the association of coaching and also on the social prescription service with the nhs um so that means that you know once someone does come out of an episode of maybe depression, anxiety after medication, I'm then able to actually be prescribed to them as a support service. So it may not be very prevalent now, but it's definitely something that's happening over the next few months and years. So watch this space. And then to sort of make that into more of a real business so I can actually not just be helping people and giving my time, you know, actually get some money to pay the bills. I've built an outsourced wellbeing department so businesses with 50 to 250 400 employees who may not have a designated well-being officer or that officer is also doing another job basically we'll come along and we'll be their well-being provision so we can do assessments we can organize training development days well-being and bring in specialists for certain subject areas whether it's they want someone to come and do lego play facilitation or they want a talk on how to be more mindful at work it's it's all coming together at the moment still very new only launched in august well not properly launched but soft launch in august so there's a lot happening there can you give us a website or facebook page for that so again the listeners can go and look it up uh website is a very very basic one pager at the moment but anyone can visit now so it's um www.thejoydept.co.uk
it will it will change over coming years <laughs> but just look at where you are now and it was through you stepping out and getting that help and going through that healing journey and getting the therapies and just working your way through it I'm just absolutely amazed at where you are now and how far you have come it's so exciting in the journey <laughs> the thing is that we come this far and it isn't all plain sailing. We still have down days, but maybe them down days don't last as long. Is that the same for you? And um, you know that that's the, the whole point, really. That all the training I'm doing is enabling me to put tools in place so that when I do have my lows, I am able to help myself better. Yes. When when you're a coach, you have to apply everything to yourself yeah. first. Otherwise, <laughs> how can you ever set by example? But yeah, I mean, I I myself, I've I've just come out of a a three-week really bad low period where I've been really sad, really crying, um, very uncertain, very unstable because, you know, COVID and my partner's job and me starting a new business. And it, it's been really hard. And all the, instead of it maybe lasting six months like it would have done before, it was a three-week period where some days were up, some days were down. Overall, I've come out, I'm still feeling motivated and happy. I've had the people I can go to to pep me up. I've had the tools in place that meant it's only been an hour lying down in bed rather than two days. Yeah. I've I've got medicine which enables me now. I'm with them something called Project Twenty Twenty One. Despite common knowledge or common belief, shall I say, um, medicinal cannabis has been legal in the UK for a few years now. Um, it's available on the NHS if you've got cancer, and it's known as Epidolex or Sativex, which is a very much chemical made version. But the actual flower and oils and capsules and gel, I think as well are all actually available currently through medical cannabis clinics in the UK who are private doctors and it is expensive. But there's a drug trial going on with drug science, which is basically collecting evidence of how the medicines work to present to NICE, which is the government drugs panel, yes. and the NHS, in order for them to pick up and supplement and prescribe the medication. So I've been given... Um, really high 20 20 to 1 thc to cbd oil to help me sleep and oh my goodness me i can sleep <laughs> it works i'm not on amitriptyline i'm not on any like weird sleeping medication i'm not on any benzos so i've got no addictive stuff at all i can take it or leave it and um, we've been given a flower to vape as well which helps you drift off in the evening but the effects don't last so long um but the try the, the project project 2021 so long as you've got um, one of the qualifying conditions, so anxiety, sleep disorder, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, ME, MS. Oh, <laughs> um, there's, there's quite a few. So if you, if you go on the website, you can have a look. Um, oh, all, all you need to be eligible is to have tried two traditional methods of medicine through the NHS. So you have to have tried either a talking therapy twice or once or twice and or a medicine that would normally be prescribed for it. And it needs to be an official diagnosis. Yeah. You send that off. Um, they ring you up. They book you in. They request your medical records. You might need to be a bit proactive on that front. Um, and then they submit your case to a panel and you get your prescription through the post. And it's half the price of if you went through either a black market route or if you went direct private. Yeah. because it's subsidised by the trial. Yeah. So, um, you know, th there are options out there and it's, um, it's definitely helped me. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. The start of a new springboard and it's just about now 
on this next chapter is taking it at a pace that works for me, putting appropriate boundaries in place. And if there are days where I can't do anything, acknowledging that's okay, I'll do it tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> and that, that's that's literally how this next chapter's got to work for me. <laughs> no, that's great. And it's really amazing. And I wish you all the best for the future and your new businesses. I really do. So we're going to move on now to the quickfire questions. Um, and that is where I ask a question and you give a quick answer. Okay, so the first question is, what makes you smile? Sunshine, cats, little gestures. And how would you like to be remembered? I want to be known as someone who helped facilitate change for the better. It's powerful, yeah. How would you now summarise your life's purpose? To bring joy. What's your favourite film? Ooh, I might have three. (laughs) (laughs) Slipper and the Rose. Love that film, beautiful old 1970s Cinderella. Um, Seven Pounds with Will Smith, that's very moving. And I love Pan's Labyrinth as well. Yes, yes. What's on your bedside table right now? Uh, currently a lamp, some worry dolls, a mishmash of crystals, about seven different books on either psychology or self-help. <laughs> some medications, it's a mess. <laughs> Three people that has influenced your life? They just have to be friends, really. It's certain people who've come <laughs> along at the right time. And um, them suggesting books or tools, definitely. Do you ever have times when you feel alone now? Um, Less so. I've got one or two really good friends, whereas like two, three years ago I didn't. And my partner and I are really close. My husband and I are really close. Yeah. We've got a very good friendship. So yes. I'm a lot more supportive than I used to be, but still yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It takes time, doesn't it? I think. If you could turn back time to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to her right now? Be kinder to yourself. Slow down a bit, but keep being awesome. That's great, and that is so positive. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and of how you healed and are still healing now and the tools that you've used within to get there. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. It's lovely talking with you. Emily is an inspiration to us all. She pushed through it all and found the tools deep within to rise up and start her healing journey and get the help needed. When we free ourselves, we free those around us. Freedom is contagious. Emily now is bringing help and joy to others because she stepped out even though she felt she couldn't. She did and the doors opened. Sometimes it's scary to take that step, but after hearing her story today, I know what helps so many ladies out there to do the same. If you feel you'd like to share your story to help others, please contact us. We look forward to our next podcast. See you there.